if you ache for truth, goodness, and beauty, if you're hungry for a Christianity with substance and strength, if you long for a faith that's big and bold and biblical and all about Jesus Christ, if you're inspired by the idea of one church that has spanned 20 centuries, 24 time zones, and two hemispheres, enfolding every race, nation, and language, then you're considering Catholicism. Welcome to Considering Catholicism. I'm Greg Smith, your guide to the faith, life, and civilization that is historic Catholic Christianity. Here on the podcast, we're doing an occasional or intermittent series of episodes on the Eucharist as a part of the three-year Eucharistic revival launched by the United States Council of Catholic Bishops. We talked about the reasons for this in the first episode in this series, which was episode 36, Making the Eucharist Matter Again. You can find it in the archive. Now, in the last few installments in this series, we explored the Old Testament scriptural background for the Eucharist and the metaphysical miracle that occurs every time a Catholic Mass is celebrated. But today, Corey and I talked about the first of three particular miracles that occurred during the celebration of the Eucharist, the miracle of consecration. Now, if your parish rings consecration bells during the Eucharistic prayer, then the first time that the bells are rung is when the priest calls down the Holy Spirit upon the offerings of bread and wine. This is technically called the epiclesis. The priest asks the Father to send the Holy Spirit to sanctify or make holy or consecrate these offerings so that they may become the body and blood of Jesus. At that point in the Mass, the bell is rung one time. In New Testament Greek, epiclesis means invocation. And as Corey and I discuss in this episode, the invocation to consecrate the elements actually begins even before that, when the priest vests in the sacristy to act in persona Christi, in the person of Christ. And so, when the priest, acting in the person of Christ, calls on the Father to send the Holy Spirit, Trinitarian miracle occurs. We're reminded of the manifestation of the Trinity at Christ's baptism or on the mountain of transfiguration. We can be distracted or snooze through the Mass, but if we do, then we're missing a powerful miracle when our parish priest miraculously acts as Christ himself and the triune God appears before us. So, Corey, in our last conversation, we kind of went a field and got into like weird, like college metaphysics kind of stuff. And like maybe some of our listeners are like, oh my gosh, you know, this got a little bit, a little bit weird. But what our point was is that the mass itself is a supernatural miracle. Right. Almost everything about it is the very fact that it is, is a supernatural miracle and it distinguishes it from all the other kinds of things that we might do in a church building. Mm -hmm. So 
now what I want to do in the next couple of episodes is talk about at least three distinct or particular, that's the better word, three particular miracles that occur within the Catholic Mass. Right. Okay. And we're going to talk about consecration, transubstantiation, and communion as three particular miracles. Mm -hmm. They're all linked, of course, but they are three distinct acts. Right. Now, before we dive into this, let's just talk about the nature of miracles. We, we, we touched on this a little bit in the last conversation, but let's drill down a little bit because people throw the word miracle around all the time. Right. And right? a lot of times it's just, you know, this was improbable or I really liked that this happened and I wasn't expecting it. Excellent. Excellent point. A lot of times miracle is used sort of colloquially. Colloquially? Colloquially. Yeah. <laughs> Commonly. <laughs> Commonly, <laughs> in, 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 in the common tongue, it's used to indicate something that just seems super improbable. Mm-hmm. So you say, wow, that was, uh, they won the Super Bowl. It was like a miraculous thing, a miracle on ice when, you know, the Americans beat the Russians and you know, way back in whenever that was in, in hockey, the Olympics. But that's not really a miracle. Right, right. Um, because a miracle has a very sort of technical definition to it. You want to kind of talk about that? Yeah. Generally, when we're talking about a miracle, we mean something that isn't just the normal, you know, it might be improbable, but it happens over the normal course of how the laws of nature work. This would be an intervention or an exception to how things normally work. Um, and so as Christians, of course, we would describe that to God or to his agents, angels or saints, that it's them stepping in and making things work differently than they usually do for some purpose. Okay. Now, when you say how things worked, let's drill down a little bit on that. Yes. Because in our last episode, we talked about metaphysics, right? Mm-hmm. And I had explained at the intro to that episode that that term metaphysics comes from Aristotle. He wrote a mm-hmm. book called The Physics, which basically means the laws of nature. Right. And so Aristotle described all these things about how he understood the laws of nature. And then after that, he thought of a bunch of other stuff that, you know, went kind of beyond. Right. Behind the curtain. Behind the curtain. Yeah. The things that, the things that sort of, in a sense, uh, lie above or behind and govern the laws of nature. And he called those metaphysics or beyond nature. We might call them supernatural in some sense. Sure, sure. So when we talk about miracles and how things normally work, we're talking about the laws of nature. Mm -hmm. And so in some, at some times and places, we believe that God, your, your term was intervenes, perhaps suspends or... Yeah, uh, there are different kinds. I mean, some of them you could consider just sort of an acceleration or a change in the way that things normally work, like water into wine. Right. So, yeah, in some ways the laws of nature are altered mm-hmm. in an extraordinary way. But this has always raised an interesting problem for Christians or So other religions believe in miracles in the sense that gods or the gods or whatever will do unusual things, Mm -hmm. right? So, you know, you can read the Greek mythology and Zeus wants to uh, have uh, sexual relations with some, you know, some, some buxom lady. And so he turns himself into a swan or something weird. And then they have like a swan child god or something, right? So in Greek mythology, there's all this crazy stuff. The gods are always just sort of like suspending the rules of nature. But the problem in those kinds of pagan religions is that the laws of nature then become unreliable. Mm -hmm. And so the gods become these capricious beings that are just, you know, willy nilly uh, suspending the laws of nature. And in a sense, you have nothing that you can count on. And Christianity in its first years was a 
one of its innovations is that we believed in a God of order, right? Of law, or who does establish norms. And I think that's a fundamental difference between Christianity and various pagan cults is that their gods are not lawgivers or creators in a, in a fundamental sense. They sometimes shape the universe, but they didn't give rise to it, and they're not really in control of nature and physical processes. They can monkey with it based on their own desires. But when we have a Christian miracle done by the Christian God, this is the lawgiver and the creator doing something with his own laws and with his own creation in harmony with his design. It's different than how he has normally set things to go up in the normal course of events. It's special in that case, but it's not, it's not separated from, from his normal creating and sustaining acts in the world. Now, we're going to get to the miracle of consecration in the Mass, but I still want to dwell on the topic of miracles just for a minute because mm. I, I'm sure everybody is interested in you know, oh, yeah, miracles. Oh, yeah, of course. Everyone is. And I think this is a super important point, particularly about Catholicism and the history of Catholicism. And that is, is that you know, secularists since the Enlightenment have accused Catholicism of being anti-science and against learning. Would The opposite is true. Um, Catholicism has often been at the forefront of science and mathematics throughout history. And there's a particular reason for that, because Catholicism preserved this notion that we have a God of law and order who made a good universe that is governed by observable laws and that human reason and observation is capable of observing that universe and, and discerning things from God about it, which Paul alludes to in Romans chapter one, the things of, uh, the things of God are discernible from the creation about the, of the creator are discernible from his creation. So a miracle far from being like Catholic magic that Catholics just believe in this kind of chaotic sort of pagan universe where God's just sort of doing things and, you know, the Virgin Mary is appearing in pieces of toast and, you know. There's no consistency. There's no consistency, right? Actually believes that we live in a very ordered universe that's observable and scientifically knowable. And yet God in his will on rare occasions chooses to alter or intervene and that's why when we look at miracles, the Vatican examines those very carefully. Mm-hmm. And invites in uh, secular experts in order to examine them. Right. I think the impression of a lot of secularists or maybe even a lot of Protestants is that Catholics believe in this sort of chaotic magic and there are just miracles happening everywhere and it's mumbo jumbo. And But actually, it's Catholicism has this notion that miracles are rare. Right. I, I see them honestly as the exception that proves the rule. You have to have an orderly universe for a miracle to make sense. Um, if, if the universe is just willy-nilly, um, has no consistency and no rules, then a miracle is, is just garden variety. It's what happens every day. Right. I mean, this would be, I know you and I once worked on a uh, book on um, Islam mm-hmm. and the difference between Christianity and Islam way back in our prior life. We worked on that. And one of the things that's interesting about Islam is it doesn't have this sense that God is in a sense bound to his creation, right? This is inshallah. You know, God will, as Allah wills, things are just going to happen. They're just going to happen as they happen. And Right. The will of God is his fundamental right. trait and that he, he can will um, in, even in contradiction to himself. Now, the other side of this is something that really developed in the Enlightenment and into the 19th and early 20th century, 
where you had this notion of God's laws, that God would not suspend his laws. So you had the divine watchmaker. Right. That, deism. Yeah, deism, and that God sort of steps back from it. And the, where that got super weird in the 19th and early 20th century was people were going through the miracles of the Bible and then trying to explain them by natural processes mm-hmm. so that you could say, well, um, you know, because God wouldn't intervene and change nature because he's a divine watchmaker who's sort of hands off. Well, that's one uh, approach, or you can just take the, the Jefferson approach and cut them out. And cut, yeah, 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 Thomas Jefferson, who published a version of the New Testament, which he just took an exacto knife and cut all the miracles out. But I mean, I may remember in seminary having to read some of these guys and they're like, well, you know, when the Mo- Israelites crossed the Red Sea, you know, there was like a, there was like a hurricane or a typhoon and it just happened to blow the water. And so it got super shallow and they were able to walk across. And, you know, what always struck me when I would read this stuff is that it presumed that the people of those days were stupid and they didn't recognize a miracle when they saw one. Right, which is which is ridiculous. I mean, when you live in a society like that, that's as close to natural processes as it was. I mean, they had to herd, they had to farm, they they right. they, they watched the stars. They knew how this stuff worked. I remember, and I, you can still find people say that um, the virgin birth couldn't have happened because that was just an ignorant age that didn't know where babies came from. Mm-hmm. And I always thought, well, I, I guarantee you they. <laughs> knew where babies came from. It's pretty easy to figure out. And Mary's response to the angel Gabriel to the Annunciation indicates that she knew where babies... And and Joseph's response. Yeah, where babies came from. So anyway, there's some categories of miracles and I want to talk about those real quickly because they're going to be relevant here. We're Mm -hmm. going to get into the consecration of the mass. But but it seems to me that that miracles, there are different kinds. Some are actually a suspension. We talk about the way things normally work. Some are actually material. So for example... Either the Red Sea parts and collapses on Pharaoh or it doesn't. Right. Uh, either Lazarus gets up out of the grave or he doesn't. Either there's a baby in Mary's womb or there isn't. I mean, some of these actually are interventions in the physical world. Or healings or, or yeah. healings or whatnot. There's another kind of miracle, which is a miracle of altering our perceptions or allowing us to perceive things. And, you know, maybe a great example of this, we talked last time about angels appearing and are they there or are we just being able to, to see something right. that's not materially there? I, I think a great example was the uh, Peter and the Apostles preaching at Pentecost. Right. Because at Pentecost, it does not say they spoke other tongues. It says that there were people from all around the world speak who, you know, spoke obviously all these other languages, but they were able to understand what Peter was saying. Mm-hmm. And that's an alteration of their perception. So the miracle was a miracle of hearing or understanding, not an altering, you know, Peter Peter wasn't speaking Chinese. Right, right. But if there were Chinese people there, then they were understanding what he was saying in Aramaic as Chinese. Right, right. So it seems that there's these different natures of miracles, uh, natures of where things are actually altered or, or alterations of what we perceive. And I think now as we kind of turn to the mass here, I think both those kinds of things are going on, mm-hmm. right? Right. I mean, there's things that are actually happening in the mass that are material changes or material interventions in our physical world. And yet there are also things that are sort of alterations of our understanding or perception. Right. And, and, and the understanding is key because they're objective changes, like the mir- miracle is happening whether you perceive it or not. Correct. It's not just right, right? So it's not subjective. 
So let's let's dive into this with mm-hmm. the first of the three miracles we're going to talk about in the, the first one, and that is the miracle of consecration, which is objectively occurring whether the people sitting in the pews understand it or not. Right. Why don't you explain what consecration is in this context in the Mass? Okay, so when the priest is consecrating the elements, so he's he's taking the bread and the wine, and he's speaking the words of Christ in the Eucharistic prayer over them, and God is doing something to them. Um, he is changing them fundamentally. But for this to happen, there has to be something going on with the priest. Um, this is not just a, an ordinary person um, saying some words this is a person who has been uniquely oriented to Christ. He, he, in his ordination, he, he's been given the capacity to act in the person of Christ, in persona Christi, as, as we say in Latin. And so there's a miracle happening here. God is doing something in the nature of this man. He is making himself present in a unique way that's not happening at other times and places when he's not doing something like making himself present in the Eucharist. Right. So our imaginary father Dudley mm-hmm. with his bald spot and poor his... Father Dudley. Yeah, poor father Dudley with his bald spot and his big tummy and his, you know... He gets worse every time he's... I, I know. I, and, and his limp and, and, and his hay fever, <laughs> right? And so he keeps sneezing and whatever. Um Poor Father Dudley doesn't have, he's not uh, a miracle worker. Mm -hmm. That's an important thing. Is a miracle is occurring there, but not because Father Dudley is a miracle worker. It's not by his strength. It's not his strength. And it isn't that Father Dudley can sort of summon up and do magic incantations or through the power of Father Dudley. Instead, that Father Dudley with all of his you know, attributes, and I keep adding them, making him worse and worse. A hair lip. <laughs> <laughs> right. He's got a hair lip and he's got a, right, uh, his Parkinson's and everything else, right? Whatever it is that Father Dudley has wrong with him, right? And yet the miracle is, the first and most important miracle is that the technical term is, right, in persona Christi, mm-hmm. that Christ acts through Father Dudley and Father Dudley in the moment of leading the mass is in a sense being act a stand. See, I wouldn't even say a stand in, would you? And it's not that he's a puppet. It's that it's that in a sense, the miracle is that Christ is present and acting through him. Right. Or, or in him. I mean, to some extent, our language is limited in describing this um, right. because it's it's different from other means that are available to us. It's it's not exactly the same as like if I had a puppet and I was just pulling the strings. I mean, right. because Father Dudley is his own independent being with a will of his own, and it's not exactly the same as if like I put on a glove and so the glove around right. my hand is moving because my hand is moving. Like all of those analogies maybe can kind of get us a little closer to understanding. Right. But I think it is a, is a unique thing that, that God is doing, and it's present in all the sacraments, that, that Christ is the one who consecrates, Christ is the one who baptizes, Christ is the one who absolves, et cetera, et cetera. I think there's another way that we can perhaps misunderstand it, and that's in a sort of legal representational sense. Sure. So in other words, you might say, well, I have a, I have a proxy, so um, you know, my attorney is empowered to speak for me or whatever. Or I have a sales guy who's able to go out and negotiate on my behalf so if I'm a, a business owner. It's a legal fiction. Yeah, like a legal fiction. And so it's not just that Father Dudley at that moment is occupying an office 
or a legal proxy. So he's doing acting in Christ's authority because that's what I was taught in seminary that I was doing as a Protestant pastor, as a Calvinist, Mm -hmm. that at the moment that I was uh, doing the, the preaching of the word or the sacraments, that in that moment I was acting as, in a sense, Christ's proxy, his legal representation at that place. I was fulfilling an office, but I wasn't miraculously imbued with or intersected with or in some ways I don't want to use, you know, you say our language breaks down. I don't want to see like, it's not like you're like a puppet, like you say, or whatever. But in a sense that Christ isn't at that moment acting through me. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think the biblical image of the body, as we're talking about, he's in the person of Christ. The head is probably the the easiest and clearest way to, to talk about it is, is that Christ is acting and the priest is a member of his body and, and is operating as a special member of his body at this at this time to do something. See, I think this is where what happens in the sacristy before the mass is important. So if I run into poor Father Dudley half an hour before the mass and he's wandering around the building, I know I I, I know a priest um, who has a uh, a a black lab. Um, that, mm. that is like the church dog. It's like the parish dog. Okay. And, and so when people um, show up at, for mass, it's like his dog is like waiting in the narthex. Like they like greet people and like, you know, slobber on them and smile. And the priest is just a friendly guy and I'm here with my dog and everything else. But if I encounter Father Dudley before the mass, he's Father Dudley. Right. But then he goes into the sacristy. And he goes through a process in the sacristy of, in a sense, consecrating himself or entering into the person of Christ through the donning of the vestments and certain prayers, right? Right. And so, I mean, we could do a whole episode on that, what the various vestments are and the prayers, but he puts on a sequence of vestments and says a sequence of prayers. And when he comes out of the sacristy, he is now acting in the person of Christ. Right. And this is why it doesn't matter for the efficacy of the sacraments what kind of man he is, whether he's a good man or a bad man. Right. We talked about that when we talked about Graham Greene's The Power and the Glory in right. Book Club, right. you know, that uh, you had the whiskey priest and the whiskey priest was the whiskey priest. But when he was, when he was acting in persona Christi, in the person of Christ, the, the sacraments were valid. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I just real quick, uh, as an aside on this, you know, just to contr- compare and contrast, the, the Calvinist denomination that I came out of, I don't know if they still do this, but when, when I was um, in seminary, you would still see these older, I would still occasionally go visit these older style churches, kind of more traditional. And the power was understood to be in the elders of the church. So you would go into the, basically the church council room or the board room Mm -hmm. before, and they would shake your hand and give you permission to go into their pulpit and preach a sermon. And then when the church started, it wasn't a processional down, but we would come in down a side aisle and I would follow the elders and they would walk down and sit in the front seat. And then the, the chairman, the elders would shake my hand in front of everybody and give me permission to go up there and preach. So it has to do with the authority and the power. But when a Catholic priest vests in the sacristy and he comes down on that processional, it is in a sense, it's Father Dudley, but it's Christ in Father Dudley coming down. Right, right. And that is, that's a miracle right there. 
And then from that throw, flows the rest of the miracles of the consecration, right? So you mm-hmm. want to unpack those a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so uh, there's a miracle related to the space itself. This is a, a sacred space. It's, it's set apart. And that's not just because we choose to set it apart. We build it that way. We use it that way because of what is happening in the church and because the the Catholic Church has consecrated this space for the purpose of the sacrament. Um, This is a sanctuary. This is a holy place. This is a a place for the Eucharist to be celebrated, for the body of Christ to gather together and to celebrate this sacrament. A quick distinction is that in Protestantism, the sanctuary was the whole church where the people sat because we are the church. In a Catholic church, the sanctuary doesn't refer to the whole building. That's just called the church. Mm -hmm. The sanctuary is a very particular space. You want to explain that? Right. So it would be the space um, in a traditionally um, built church um, in the front uh, surrounding the altar. So that is where the holy sacrifice is is celebrated. And then the area around it, of of course, is for the the purpose of of preparing for and, and celebrating that sacrament. And then outside of that area where the people sit is referred to as the nave um, because it, it refers to uh, the, the seating area of a ship, um, the bark of Peter. This right. is where the, the people sit. And so you have the whole church is, is holy, but you have a holy of holies like yeah. in the temple. Yeah, and, and that's relevant to this miracle of consecration because mm-hmm. that sacred space around the altar is where, as we said in the last episode, when we talked about this sort of intervention, the kind of flatland thing where what's happening in Revelation chapter 5 in the eternal now is sort of intersecting our universe, our world as we encounter it. That's happening in that sanctuary space because mm-hmm. that's where the, the participation and the eternal sacrifice of Christ is taking place. And so the priest, as he comes down into that consecrated space, which has been consecrated by a bishop, Mm -hmm. but also is consecrated in his usage of it, right? right? Exactly. It's the celebration of the Eucharist that is what... And at the the beginning of that moment in the Mass, the beginning of the Eucharistic prayer, the priest calls down the Holy Spirit, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. And that is where the consecration happens. He consecrates the elements or begins the consecration of the Eucharistic celebration by calling the Holy Spirit down. And if that's not a miracle, I don't know what the definition of a miracle is. Yeah. So at that moment, God in a miraculous way becomes present because the space has been consecrated, because the priest has been consecrated, and through then him acting in the person of the second person of the Trinity, mm-hmm. he calls down the third person of the Trinity to fill that space. And we have this, and in some small sense, we have the, we have kind of a minor reflection of the beatific vision where we perceive the Trinity, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a kind of theophany because God is present. Sure. I mean, it's, it's a little bit, you know, when you think about Mount Tabor and the the transfiguration where uh, Peter, James, and John be able to see in a sense that the Trinity displayed or, or in in a sense, the baptism of Jesus by John, where Mm -hmm. you have Jesus in the water and the father speaking and the Holy Spirit descending in this powerful moment, the Trinity is being invoked and intersecting. And again, I'm going to, you know, it's, you know, the parish, you know, of St. Such and Such on the corner with Father Dudley. And, you know, Frank is, you know, snoozing next to me and Sally's, you know, child is playing with the car keys and screeching. And yet, and, and yet God is doing something. God, God is present. And that's objectively true rather than being dependent on what the people 
perceive. And that's the important point I want to kind of end this conversation on because whether or not I'm sitting there bored and thinking about what I'm going to have for lunch or whether or not I'm, you know, doing whatever I'm doing, whether I perceive it or not, a miracle is occurring in that consecration, right? Yes. Exactly. Absolutely. Well, now we're going to talk in the next conversation, we're going to talk about the next miracle that happens after the consecration, the invoking of the Holy Spirit, which is the what? Transubstantiation. The transubstantiation of the elements. Yes. Right? So we'll talk about that in the next episode. Absolutely. Yep. Thank you for listening. My name is Greg Smith. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, would you please hit the like and subscribe buttons wherever you get your podcasts? And please share it with others. And if you're curious about the Catholic worldview and faith, the Church and its Saints, or Catholic history, culture, and art, then visit consideringcatholicism.com. And email me to let me know what you think. Greg at consideringcatholicism.com dot com.